Strange as it may sound, editing liberated the camera. Long before drones and steadicams, crane and tracking shots, editing told filmmakers they could stop cranking the camera, pick up the contraption and move it to another location and begin filming again. What the camera captured was a simple phenomenon of whatever was happening in front of it. To our modern eyes, those events are mundane. Little, if anything, of importance happens. But to audiences back in the late 19th century, whatever happened on screen was important, by simple virtue of the fact that it was happening. The novelty of cinema meant they were spectacles. Those wonders, a train entering a station, a baby being fed breakfast, a rough sea at Dover, were all captured in single shots. Then, through the newly created phenomenon of editing, different shots were linked together, resulting in more ambitious and complex stories. The advent of synchronised sound furthered that ambition, but also complicated it. When people are talking, where do you put the camera? Taking the cue of the already established close-up shot, filmmakers realised they could frame the image so it favoured the actor who was speaking. When the actor stopped, the camera could then be moved to the opposite angle to show the other actor. And that became an important element of film grammar, the shot-reverse shot. It has since become so familiar to audiences that when a film does not adhere to the principle, it sometimes feels that not only is a rule being violated, it's bad grammar. Take for instance the films of the great late Iranian auteur Abbas Kiarostami. In 1997, Kiarostami was awarded the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for Taste of Cherry, thus becoming the first Iranian filmmaker to be so honoured. But for this podcast, let us look at his later masterpiece, Ten. Released in 2002, Kiarostami's film presents a portmanteau of conversations that take place in a car. <laughs> Doubling up as his own director of photography, what Kiarostami did was simply place two small video cameras on the dashboard, one angled on the driver, the other on the passenger. However, despite the choice of two shots, it isn't until 20 minutes into the film that we finally get our first shot-reverse shot. Why? Kiarostami was a master filmmaker who based his entire aesthetic on defying the expectations laid down by decades of conventional film grammar. The most basic expectation of which is that wherever the camera is placed, wherever it is pointing, something important will happen in front of it. But trains entering stations, babies being fed, or rough seas at the port of Dover are no longer important enough for audiences. Today, we need a woman frantically diffusing a bomb, a congregation watching as a man stands anxiously and alone at a church altar, a pensioner's house being carried into the air by thousands of balloons. Hi, Mr. Fredrickson. It's me, Russell. What are you doing out here, kid? I found the snipe and I followed it under your porch. But this snipe had a long tail and looked more like a large mouse. For an audience, what happens in front of the camera is what facilitates genre. Genre not only lets us know what we are watching, a romance, a comedy, an action picture, it tells us how to watch it. Kiarostami did not make action pictures, much less genre pictures. And least of all, he did not tell us how to watch. He did this by withholding certain elements mainstream audiences would consider imperative to not just tell the story, but to sell it. Which is somewhat curious because before making features, Kiarostami worked in advertising, designing posters and directing commercials. Born in Tehran in 1940, 
Kurdistami was 37 years old before he made his theatrical feature debut with The Report, which explored the domestic life of a public official accused of corruption. But his first venture into cinema began in 1969 with The Bread and Alley, which in 10 minutes depicts the plight of a small boy whose route home from the bakery is blocked by a barking dog. After the jocular opening, Kirdistami adopted the visual style of three Italian neorealist filmmakers, Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica and Lucchino Visconti. They each devised their techniques to liberate filmmakers and audiences from the heavily prescribed grammar of commercial cinema. And over the years, Kirdistami's films have been described in turn as poetic and lyrical, as well as being categorised as part of the slow cinema movement. Then, quasi-documentary, as well as Transcendental Cinema. Here to give a very detailed explanation of Transcendental Cinema is Paul Schrader, on this occasion delivering an hours-long lecture at the 2017 Toronto Film Festival. The essence of motion pictures is action and empathy. It's built into the title, Motion, Action, Empathy, Pictures. So these are the two great engines that pull the commercial train of cinema forward. If you like action, which transcendental style will offer inaction. You know, people will walk very slowly and uh, they'll talk slowly. And sometimes they won't hardly talk at all. And transcendental style and other withholding styles work against action and empathy. Take one example of a withholding technique, which is the delayed cut. Now, in a normal film, if a man enters or exits a room, the splice is made as the door opens or as the door closes. What you started to see in these withholding techniques, cut to the door. One, two, three, the door opens. Door closes, one, two, three, cut. Now, that is withholding something from the viewer that they expect. It is displacing the viewer. Because in real life, when somebody walks out of the room, we don't stare at the door for three seconds. Our mind moves on to something else. But when you're watching this film, all of a sudden you're just looking at a closed door for four seconds. Well, that is disrupting you. That's withholding something from you that you have expected from the movies, which is a certain pace. And it is a tool which the filmmaker is using. A transcendental style will short you on empathy too. You will have low-key performances, uh, sometimes by non-actors. Scenes will be shot and edited against your empathetic needs. You know, normally master over the shoulder, close up during a certain moment, uh, high angle, low angle. <coughs> These tell you how to feel. In these techniques, the filmmaker are guiding your emotions through the scene. You should feel this now and feel that now because of the cutting pattern. Well, when you don't cut, well, you have to start doing the editing yourself. And that is a whole very different process than the editorial winks and nudges that we are used to. The same holds true with music. The simplest and most effective way uh, 
to dictate a viewer's response to an image is underscoring. Happy, scared, sad. You know, I'll, we'll tell you exactly what to feel. Don't worry about how you feel because you're supposed to feel sad. So we'll play sad music. 10 is deceptively simple. So simple, in fact, that Kiristami was not even present when the film was shot. Having placed the two dash cams in the car, he left the actors to improvise the script, which was only really an outline of where he wanted them to take their conversations. Over the course of the 10 vignettes, all but two of them are between women, and their conversations address such topics as religion, gender, marriage, autonomy and happiness. With such wide-ranging issues, it was only after all the filming had been done that he and his fellow editors, Vahid Ghazi and his son, Bachman Kiristami, began whittling it all down to a 94-minute running time. But the film's artful simplicity emerges in the opening seconds. The dashcams neither pan, zoom nor tilt, instead staying completely locked off. And yet, because they're in a travelling car, they're always moving. From there, we have to admit that what we are seeing is more complex than a seemingly static shot. Although the people are travelling around public spaces, their conversations are taking place in a private space. And yet, because the static views of the dash cams remind us of a closed circuit TV camera, there is also a sense that the private space is being invaded. That paradox is underlined by the fact that the unnamed driver is played by Mania Akbari. <laughs> Like many neorealist and transcendental directors, Kiristami often used non-professional actors. But in the case of Akbari, she was not only an established actress, she's an artist, writer and multi-award winning filmmaker. More than that, her work deals with issues of sexual identity, sexual orientation, marriage, abortion and capital punishment. Prior to making 10, Kiristami had been asked why he had not paid sufficient attention in his films to women's issues, and he generally tended to excuse himself on the grounds that Iran's censorship laws restricted the manner in which women could be depicted on screen. With 10, he emphatically redressed that imbalance. With the car providing her mobility, it appears that Akbari's character is living a liberated life. Yet, through several conversations, especially with her young son, played by Akbari's real-life son, Amin, it is clear that her character still experiences severe limitations in a society controlled by men. So, perhaps the dashcam angle is meant to resemble a surveillance camera. So what is it really, and what is it really about? Here is Kiristami at New York's Lincoln Centre in 2012, being interviewed by fellow filmmaker Robert Pena, with Kiristami's answers provided in English by his regular translator, Dorna Kazeni. Um, whenever people ask me what's the story of my next project, of my next film, I wouldn't tell and people feel it's because I'm being secretive or something. It's not that at all, it's just that I'm ashamed of, of um, summing up a film in three sentences because I'm sure that um, true cinema viewers don't come there for hearing stories. They come. Cinema is not about telling stories. So why should I be able to sum it up in a, in a pitch? I can't. And uh, and so this embarrassment that I feel, I really get rid of it through photography. 
The second passenger is the driver's fictional sister, played by Mandana Sharbov. In the course of their conversation, both women vent their grievance that both their sons have accused them of being poor mothers. Then the sister accidentally breaks her fingernail against the window. She carries on with the scene regardless, incorporating the unscripted, unpredicted moment into her performance. It is a minor detail, but one that links it to a key neorealist film. Directed by Vittorio De Sica in 1952, Umberto Di depicts a moment when Maria, a young pregnant housemaid played by Maria Pia Casilio, wearily tries lighting the stove. Once, twice, three times she goes to strike the match, but each time it fails. In the hands of another director, action would have been cut and a fresh take begun. So why did De Sica keep going? Because it was true to life. Here is Kiristami once more from the same New York interview. I, I just want to tell you how, how close I feel to you in the way you watch a film, because me as a director, the only reasons why I go on making films is for this unpredicted moment. For, I don't make film to see what I've designed happen or to see my, the actors say the lines that I've written, I do it only for this unexpected moment of, of a very small gesture, a very small look that an actor can give me that I wasn't expecting, rather than perfectly saying the, the, the words that I've written. Now, I said Kiristami's camera maintained two static positions throughout the entire film. Yes, but there is one extremely important exception. In the fourth vignette, a female sex worker, played by Katayun Talizadeh, gets into the car and almost instantly she asks to be let out, because in the darkness of the street at night, she mistook the driver for a man. But yet they drive on and their conversation covers the issues of men who cheat on their wives. For the entire sequence, Kurdistami keeps the angle exclusively on the driver. By keeping the camera on the driver, it means that the passenger's voice is always off screen. Off-screen sound alludes to off-screen space. In mainstream cinema, the notion of off-screen space is minimized simply because of the rate of cutting. But in Kiristami's 10, off-screen space brings up the question of whether that space is private or public. And I ask that because what happens next is completely unexpected. At the passenger's request, the driver stops the car and the passenger gets out. Abruptly, Kiristami cuts to a completely new view, this one through the front windscreen as the passenger returns to her work. But by only allowing us to see her in a distance and not her face, Kiristami is maintaining her privacy. Of the ten sequences in the film, no less than four are devoted to Akbar and her son. With the exception of her former husband, the boy is the only male who appears in the film. Yet, even at the age of 10, he seems to personify the patriarchy which causes so much upset for several of the women. Which leads me to the ninth, and by far, the most affecting vignette. The passenger, played by Roya Abshahi, is a woman we have already seen in the fifth sequence, when she shared that she was in a relationship with a man, but was praying that he would soon propose to her. When we see her the second time, she is visibly upset. The man she loves has just left her. Tearfully, she pulls back her chador to reveal that she has shaved her head. This is a deeply rupturing moment on several fronts. Firstly, under Iranian censorship laws, 
it is prohibited for a woman on camera to remove her veil and reveal her hair. After a moment, the driver, initially clearly shocked, remarks that she looks great with a shaven head. And then comes the film's strongest moment. With the camera on the passenger, suddenly the driver's hand enters the frame to sympathetically wipe away her tears. In human terms, it is a crucial gesture, but in terms of cinematic grammar, it is the only time Kirastami permits two people to share the same frame. Nowhere else in the story do any of the characters touch. So, in this instance, it is as if Kirastami was so moved by the improvised, unpredicted moment, this public display of female solidarity, and it is public because it happens in the film, that Kirastami decided to violate his own strict cinematic code.